Our scripture this evening is taken from the book of Judges, and we're going to look at expressly at chapter 13, but we're also going to look at excerpts from 14, 15, and 16. So if you could open your pew Bibles to page 247 and put your thumb there, I'll pray, and then we'll uh, read um, most of uh, chapter 13, and then I want you to keep your thumb in there. We'll keep going back into that. Judges 13, 14, 15, 16 will be our, our, um, our, our discussion grounds for this evening. Judges 13. I'm going to read all of that chapter, but I'm going to skip six through verses 6 and 7 just to save a paragraph. It's kind of redundant information. So uh, 13, 1 through 25, I'm going to skip 6 and 7. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you don't drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. Because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart for, to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to, to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband, Manoah, was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up, followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, Are you the one who talked with my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, When your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all that I have told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, We would like you to stay until we've prepared a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, Even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy, named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir while he was in my 
Hannah, Dan, between Zorah and Ashtael. This is God's word. I've been reading the uh, J.K. Rowling series, and uh, for those of you who uh, know what I'm talking about, I think they got the flu powder from this, this, uh, this chapter. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it'll take too long to explain. But it's a, see, some youth over here are laughing. But, um, <clears throat> sorry, that probably wasn't the best way to start a sermon with an inside joke, but here we go. When we think of uh, Samson, we seldom recall details surrounding his miraculous birth. In fact, most of us don't remember that his birth was miraculous at all. Did you remember that? But it's right there. Samson's mother was sterile and childless, but God intervened. What we do remember are the more soap opera-like events from Samson's life that are taught in Sunday school or VBS or in children's sermons. Stories about Samson's great strength and how he uh, is attacked by a, a lion and is able to kill him with his bare hands. Or how, uh, probably the most famous one, how his girlfriend Delilah tricks him into revealing the secret of his strength and she cuts his hair and he grows, he uh, gets weakened to the point of just an average everyday guy. But when you detach those fascinating, very entertaining stories from the details surrounding Samson's birth, you miss out on a key principle, or I should say a key warning about living out your faith successfully. So not only are we going to reattach those stories to Samson's birth story, but I want to root the entire story of Samson into God's bigger story, God's bigger rescue plan, all while looking at how our story fits in there, how our story compares to Samson's story, and any adjustments and story edits that we may want to make to our story in light of Samson's story. So here it goes. Let's first unpack Samson's birth details. Right there, here's the, take a look at the setting in uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Let me start from the very beginning. Who were the Israelites? See, we're missing our interactive piece like uh, we had this morning. We need to call the Elam praise team back here. Um, the Israelites are God's people, right? Um, the Israelites are the descendants of Jacob, who got later renamed Israel. And Jacob was Abraham's grandson. Abraham was the family that got, it, it was the, uh, the head of the family that God chose to begin a special relationship with. If you remember back in Genesis 12, God pledges to bless every nation of the world, bless the ends of the earth through Abraham's descendants. God specifically chooses Abraham's family as the starting point for his rescue mission that God was launching. God was intervening in a new way in his creation with a desire to restore things back to the way they were supposed to be. More specifically, to rescue us from the predicament of sin. And get us back into a relationship with God, our creator. The rescue mission starts, pretty, starts out pretty well for the first few hundred years. 
Abraham's descendant, Joseph, ends up rescuing Egypt and the surrounding land from a terrible seven years of drought and seven-year famine in the land. God was already, back then, rescuing large people groups through Abraham's descendants, now known as the Israelites. Then the rescue mission hits a standstill for a few hundred years as the Egyptians eventually uh, fear the Israelites' success, and they decide to enslave them. Then God rescues the rescue team through Moses and a very famous set of miracles that included the parting of the Red Sea. God then reacquaints himself with his people. And in that rebuilding of the relationship process, he gives them the Ten Commandments, ten guides for them as they enter into a deeper relationship with him. After a few major trust issues and some episodes of rebellion, the Israelites finally decide to trust God and cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land, the land that God had promised Abraham centuries ago. Things go pretty well for a while, but the Israelites no longer have to daily depend on God for their provisions. They settle down, they plant fields, they farm animals, they dig wells, they organize armies, they become self-sufficient, less and less dependent on God. And the generations get older, and then they die off, and younger generations rise up, and the stories weren't passed down very well. We took an offering for Timothy Christian School. If the Israelites had a Timothy Christian School, maybe Judges would be a shorter book. They didn't pass down the guides, the guidelines, who God was and what God was up to. And so the kids just did whatever they thought was right. Things start to go downhill when they become self-sufficient, when they're no longer depending for their daily bread. Let me take a quick detour here for a second. Do you remember back in the first chapter of Genesis, what was the first sin committed? This is kind of a trick question. What was the first sin committed? Yes, thank you. Someone, yes, I'm going to get it. going to get it out of you. Eating of the fruit. I would say that's wrong, actually. I would say the first... <laughs> see, no... I would say the first sin was really Adam's reluctance or refusal to stop Eve from taking that. Adam just sat there quietly. God gave Adam the command not to eat from the tree, and he saw what was going down, and he didn't do anything. I would say that was probably the first sin. But the first written sin, uh, Greg's right, it was uh, the eating of the fruit. Whether you call it the first sin or the second sin, it was... It was Adam and Eve doing the opposite of what God asked them to do. And Eve first, then Adam, eat the forbidden fruit. How about the third sin? Anybody know the third sin? What was that? Murder. No, before the murder. 
What was that? Yes. Yes. Blame shifting. Failure to take responsibility for the wrong that they did. Now, if you take these three um, sins, Adam's not speaking up, both of them going against what God asked them not to do, and then failing to take responsibility for their actions, all these three sins are common sins when things are going well. They're all common sins when things are going well. Think about this for a moment. When things are not going well, and you have to lean on God, when you're crying out to God for help, for deliverance, for rescue, you won't be quick to disobey Him, will you? I know this from my own life. When things are, are, are rough, and I am crying out to God, when I'm leaning on Him for guidance or help, it's probably my state of least likeliness to, to trip up on some temptation or something. And when you do mess up, you're more apt when you're leaning on God, when you're depending on God. You're more apt to quickly confess your sin. My bad, God. Sorry. Forgive me. Help me to walk more closely with you. If you're leaning on God because of your situation, your circumstances are out of your control, you're more apt to be careful how you live. You're more apt to be humble and realize that you're not God, that you're not in control. But when things are well, and your job is steady, and you and your family are fine, and you're not lacking anything, there's a much greater chance that you are less dependent on God, less humble in your life situation. Have a greater feeling like you've got everything under control, life is good. This is when it's easy to mess up. And usually we're unaware of it until it's too late. So the Israelites are in the spot. Things are going well. They're in the promised land. They're settling down. Their families are growing. Things are well. And they begin to forget God. They think everything's in their control. They're the ones farming. They're the ones herding. They're the ones building armies. And so basically... Eventually, they totally chuck God's plans, his commandments, and his mission right out the window. They just begin living like everyone else, just doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. So God basically says, you don't want to have anything to do with me? Then fine, have it your way. And he backs off. And in doing so, he backs off his special protection and involvement with Israel. And the Philistines come in and they take over part of Israel's territory. And they rule over the Israelites for the next 40 years. Enter our couple, Manoah and his wife. They're unable to have kids. And God sends an angel to tell them his plan. Can you see the grace right there? There's no indication that Israel has changed their minds. It doesn't say, and the people cried out to God in prayer, and so God sent an angel. It doesn't say anything. There's no sign of repentance. It says the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then God sends this angel. It's grace built right in there. God is pursuing them. He's intervening on their behalf without them asking for it. He's rescuing them again. On his own accord, because of his love for them, because of his promise to them. 
Did you see in this story a resemblance to another story in the Bible where an angel shows up to a woman and says she's going to have a baby boy? We just celebrated Christmas a few couple months ago. And it, there's a little bit of similarity there. Angel shows up to a woman, says, God's going to help you to have a baby. You weren't, weren't able to have it. Well, Mary was able to have it on her own, but she wasn't uh, married yet. You're, you're, you're going to have a, a baby with the help of God. And that baby, it says in, in um, verse 5, that he will begin the deliverance of his people. Yes, Samson is a Christ figure, although he's an incredibly flawed one. He is a pointer to the perfect deliverer, the perfect miracle baby who will save not only Israelites from their enemies, but he'll save the human race. Here's God's plan. He's going to give Manoah and his wife a miracle baby. Now, once again, God chooses to work in the most extraordinary ways with the most ordinary people. It's a very common thread as we go through this, go through scripture. And his plan is to give this, a, a son to Manoah and his wife, and he wants them to raise them in the way of a Nazarite. And uh, let's look at some of the stipulations. It says, um, see to it that you drink no wine, so no alcoholic drinks, and then don't eat anything unclean, no unclean food. No razor should touch his head. He's to be a Nazarite. Now, if you say, what's a Nazarite? Well, if, if you have done your story reading, you'll find that in Numbers chapter 6, it, it seems kind of random, but in Numbers, Numbers chapter 6, the whole chapter is devoted to when a person, a man or a woman, wants to set himself apart for God's service, and he takes a, a, a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow is, vows are listed right there in chapter 6. And it, it's, it's these vows. Um, no alcohol. No unclean food. No razor should touch your head. Um, and uh, there was one other one that Samson would have to follow because God is asking him to be, take the Nazarite vow. Is uh, don't, come nec- don't come in contact with a, a dead body. It's not listed here, but it's given in number six. No contact with a dead body. Even if you're walking down the street and the person dies right next to you on the spot, you are unclean. And you'll have to go to the priest and go through a process and be restored to to a clean status before you can continue on your Nazarite vow. I want to stop for a second and ask you, do we have vows as Christians, as followers of Christ? Well, we have the vows we make when we profess our faith in front of the church. We profess that we uh, will align our life with Scripture, we'll grow in our faith, we'll participate in the life of the church. So in that way, yes. But in an even more simple way, I think we have vows. Doesn't anyone who considers themselves to be a Christian make a basic pledge to follow Christ's teachings? If you think this is a setup, you're right. I'm trying to set you up here. Let's just agree that when we claim to follow Christ, 
we make a basic vow, a basic pledge to do just that, follow Christ. Keep that in mind. Let's get back to Samson. In verse 24, it says, The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. I love that. Samson goes on to live an incredible life. Half the time, he's just indulging in whatever desire happens to spring forth in his mind and body. But sometimes, he's actually doing the Lord's work. The first thing we find, found, find out in, in verse in chapter 14 is that he goes out to marry a, a Philistine um, girl even against his parents' urgings that, that he find a good Israelite girl. And on his way to um, see if this marriage is possible, and um, he, he comes across this lion, and the lion attacks him. And it says the, the Spirit of the Lord empowers him, and he is able to stop the lion, and he tears him to pieces with his bare hands. That's, just, that's a pretty neat story. That's a pretty neat story, right? But it's not just a story for the Sunday school curriculums. It's not just a story for um, a children's sermon. It's in there because it, it points us to a, a bigger truth. Now, if, if you are familiar with Old Testament law, Leviticus eleven twenty seven tells that a lion is an unclean animal. In fact, eleven twenty seven says that um, anything that walks on four paws is unclean. So unfortunately, your little cat is an unclean animal. You can't eat it. Um, and you can't touch a dead cat. So this is important. So uh, he, he, he saves himself, kills this lion, and then goes back to, it does his business, goes back to his parents, and then he's on his way again, this time to marry this Philistine girl. And on his way down, he happens to see the, the, the carcass of the lion he killed a little while back. And he's curious because he sees that there's a beehive in there now. And it there looks like there's a lot of honey. And what are you not supposed to do? You're not supposed to touch a dead, unclean animal. It makes you un- unclean. Does this stop Samson? No, he reaches in, gra- grabs some honey, and starts eating it. It's just a little small story, but it's important to see the character, the nature of Samson here. He eats this honey. He goes off, marries this girl, but becomes very upset with her because she tricks him into losing 30 garments, 30 sets of clothing, which would be a whole lot of money, um, on a bet that Samson makes with his relatives. See, it gets really shady. It's just like a soap opera. I, you'd think I'd be making this up, but I'm not. And so to make do on the bet that he made with um, his new wife's relatives, he walks into the nearest Philistine city, Ashkelon, and he beats up 30 men. It says he strikes them down, and he takes their clothing, and he goes back and gives it to them to make good on his bet. Then, in anger for something else, Samson gets very creative, and he goes out and he hunts down 300 foxes. Okay? Track with me. This, this does have a point. This will apply to our lives, okay? He, he hunts 300 foxes down, and he ties this, their tails together in pairs, so now there's a hundred, I don't know how he did this. There's 150 pair of fox, foxes, fox eye, fox um. And then he ties a torch 
to each of the pairs of fox's tails. Okay, so now there's 150 pairs of fox, foxes with torches dragging from their tails. And he sets them off into the Philistine country. And they burn down their wheat fields. And they burn their olive groves. And the foxes burn their vineyards. And this infuriates the Philistines. And so the Philistines retaliate by killing Samson's wife and Samson's father-in-law. Samson gets even more angry. He retaliates by killing many of the men who killed his wife. Now don't forget, Nazarite vow, he's not supposed to be anywhere near a dead body. Well, the Philistines say, hey, we can't mess around, and they amass an army of 3,000 men to capture Samson. And Samson is taken. He's actually given up by his Israelite um, brothers. But he breaks the, the, uh, the rope that binds him. And the Bible says that he grabs another unclean thing. He grabs a jawbone from the side of the road of a recently dead donkey. He grabs a jawbone, okay? And he ends up killing a thousand soldiers with just the jawbone. In fact, it's such an event that they end up naming the hill where he did it Jawbone Hill. All is quiet for a while until Samson goes out and takes a Philistine girlfriend by the name of Delilah whose number one goal in life is to betray Samson into the hands of her people. And she tries over and over again. She begs him, Samson, if you love me, tell me what will weaken you. And Samson makes up a lie and she goes and does it and it doesn't weaken him. And she gets all upset. You don't love me. Tell me what will weaken you. And so he makes up another lie. This happens three times. Three times he makes up a lie. Three times his Philistine girlfriend uh, does it, and it doesn't work. I can't for the life of me figure out why Samson doesn't get it here. The fourth time, the Bible says in chapter 16, verse 16, that she hounds him so much, 16 says, I'm going to read it right from the NIV here, with such nagging she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. And so he told her everything. He said, look, I made this Nazarite bow, and if I can't, um, I can't get my hair cut, my hair has never been cut, and that's why it's all in these long braids. And so if you cut my hair, I'll be as weak as the average man. She does it this time. Samson's weak, weakened. The Philistines come, grab him. They gouge out his eyes and throw him into prison. And he's forced to cut, uh, break down rocks in prison. It's amazing, amazing life. Several weeks later, they bring him up to a packed temple to the Philistine god Dagon. They bring him up as a circus freak to amuse the guests. And the place is packed. The Bible says there are 3,000 people up on the roof alone. And the downstairs is packed. And Samson prays to God. 
and says, God, please, just one more time, give me my strength back. And they, he has himself positioned between two pillars, and he pushes the pillars apart and sacrificially ends his life and kills the 3,000 above him and the numerous thousand people um, on the same floor with him. And the Bible says that in his death, Samson killed more Philistines than in his life. Isn't it an awful story? It's not the most inspiring moment for the rescue mission archives. Samson goes on to live an incredible life, but half the time he is just indulging whatever he wants to indulge in. Listening to his lusts, listening to his desires. But all the while, God is using this incredibly unholy, undisciplined man to accomplish his purposes anyway. Remember chapter 13, verse 5? And I will begin the deliverance of Israel through this baby boy. And it happens. God accomplishes his purposes through Samson, but in a sad, tragic way. Samson's story is a sad story, but God still uses him. He still plays a small piece in the rescue plan, but by all accounts, it looks like Samson could have been much, much more than he amounted to. I think of Samson's story, and I think of lost potential. I think of Samson's story, and it makes me reflect on my own story. How often am I more like Samson, forgetting my vows and doing what my stomach or my heart or my head tell me to do, even though it may go against God's desires, God's plan? How often do I chuck the teachings of Jesus out the window to do what I want to do? Jesus says, don't hate other people or even call them fools. Jesus says, don't lust after other people. Jesus says, keep your promise. Jesus says, love and give and forgive. How often do I break these vows because I'm following my own whim? This is why Samson's here for us. Samson is a mirror for us to look into and see what our spiritual condition is like. I think Samson is to show Israel and us that when we obey God, it goes well for us. But when we follow God half-heartedly with mixed obedience, things go terrible. Samson was a living example of the lesson the entire Israelite nation needed to learn. When we follow God, God is with us. When we do things our own way, do whatever we want, God doesn't disappear, but we lose the blessings and the benefits obedience brings. Things were going well for them. They were no longer dependent every day on God for provisions and for protection. They were no longer craving his guidance, no longer leaning on his wisdom. 
They were living and farming and herding and carrying about on their own. Things were well. And their spiritual lives were on cruise control. The lessons we learn from Samson is that when we just let our spiritual lives go with the current and our obedience level is all over the map, we will open ourselves up to all kinds of pain and consequences that sin brings. And we miss out on all the potential that God has in store for us. When things are well, we open ourselves up to the basic temptations when we don't focus on God. And those basic temptations usually have to do with two categories, desires or relationships. For example, when things are going well, we're tempted to look at internet porn. We can access it in complete secrecy on our computer or on our smartphone. No one, no one will know but God. I'm just going to do it once. All right, it's more than once, but I'm not addicted. It's really no big deal, and you can keep trying to fool yourself into thinking that it's no big deal, but all the while you can't figure out why you have no desire to pray and why your lust is skyrocketing. Maybe it's not lust. Maybe it's drinking. You have a few too many far too often. Or maybe it's how you treat your brother-in-law. You're not mean, but you're not loving. You're not embracing. You treat your coworker better than you do your flesh and blood or flesh and blood-in-law. Or maybe it's your inability to forgive. Or your materialism. You just keep buying stuff. Maybe it's not being the dad that you're supposed to be or not being the spouse that you should be. Well, I got good news. Like Samson, God doesn't abandon us when we disobey. But he will say, you want to do it your way, then you'll reap the results of that. Here's the good part. We have better than the angel of the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, dwelling in us. And we have better than a judge named Samson. We have a deliverer named Jesus. While Samson was a miracle baby, and he was dedicated to the Lord, and he did fight to deliver Israel, and he did die in a sort of sacrificial way, pushing apart the pillars. Christ was God in the flesh. He showed us God, and then he sacrificed himself on a cross, delivering us from the enemies of sin and death. And on that cross, Jesus broke the chains so that we won't be in this enslaved to the whims and the desires that enslaved Samson. And that we won't fear death or any other circumstances that looks us in, our, in the eyes. Samson is calling out to us through this text, keep your eyes focused 
on the cross. For when you do, you will not waver to the left or to the right, but you'll keep on the path that God is calling you. This Lent period, heading into this week, please set a, a, some, so, some time aside and ask God, God, where am I coasting in my spiritual life? Where am I missing the mark? Where am I straying from you? Because things are generally okay. And then listen and respond. If it's lust, if it's the computer, if it's relationships, if it's materialism, whatever, respond, repent, and head to true north.